Who owns AI? 10% Joe's corruption proxies. Things most Americans don't know. Not porn for kids, but maybe worse. I'm Mark Paquita, and we'll explore these topics and more in today's fifth episode of the Unite American Show. Welcome. Who owns AI? Last week I talked about AI, artificial intelligence, and its dangers to society. I talked about AI's biggest company, OpenAI, and their products, specifically a product called ChatGPT4, or what most people know as ChatGPT. It's the closest thing we have to strong AI, meaning AGI, artificial general intelligence, or ASI, artificial superintelligence. To watch the first AI segment, that was in last week's show, episode four, go to the 35 second mark in the Rumble video. You'll find a link in the show notes. It starts from ground zero and will help you understand the basics of AI, the terminology of AI, as well as some of its dangers. I'm pretty sure that if you watch the episode and follow a few of the links I've put in the show notes, you'll fear that dangers AI poses, and you'll want to know more. For example, wouldn't you want to know who's using AI, and specifically the capability of OpenAI's offerings? What departments and agencies of the federal government are using it? What federal government contractors are using it on behalf of the government? How are big tech companies using it? I do. But before we try to do some digging on these questions, Let's answer one that's a little easier to research. Who owns OpenAI, the company that produced ChatGPT? OpenAI is a private company and as such has very little responsibility to let the public know anything about its operations. But they do disclose on the OpenAI website their mission. They write, Our mission is to ensure that artificial general intelligence, AGI, benefits all of humanity primarily by attempting to build safe AGI and share the benefits with the world. The corporate structure of OpenAI LP is explained in a snip OpenAI has cut and pasted to its website from company organizational documents. OpenAI LP will be a for-profit Delaware limited partnership managed by its general partner, a single-member Delaware LLC controlled by OpenAI Inc., the nonprofit's board of directors. At all times, no more than a minority of the nonprofit's board of directors will be holders of any economic interest in OpenAI LP or in the employee holdings entity described below. In terms of corporate structure, OpenAI was first formed as a nonprofit. The corporate entity, OpenAI Inc., its official registered name still exists. However, there has now been formed a for profit Delaware corporation named OpenAI LP. The LP stands for Limited Partnership. The website explains about OpenAI LP, the for profit company. It says, we created OpenAI LP, a new capped profit company that allows us to rapidly increase our investments in compute and talent while including checks and balances to actualize our mission. 
Don't think that because they use the term cap profit, this is a charitable endeavor. Quite the opposite from the website. As mentioned above, economic returns for investors and employees are capped with the cap negotiated in advance on a per-limited partner basis. Any excess returns go to OpenAI nonprofit. Our goal is to ensure that most of the value, monetary or otherwise, we create if successful benefits everyone. So we think this is an important first step. Returns for our first round of investors are capped at 100 times their investment, commensurate with the risks in front of us, and we expect this multiple to be lower for future rounds as we make further progress. Who's involved in OpenAI? From the website. OpenAI Nonprofits Board consists of OpenAI LP employees Greg Brockman, Chairman and CTO, Ilya Sutskever, Chief Scientist, and Sam Altman, CEO, and non-employees Adam D'Angelo, Holden Karnofsky, Reed Hoffman, Siobhan Zillis, and Tasha McCauley. I must warn you that this list has not been updated since March 11, 2019, and there could have been changes. The website goes on. Elon Musk left the board of OpenAI Nonprofit in February 2018 and is not formally involved with OpenAI LP. We are thankful for all his past help. Our investors include Reed Hoffman's Charitable Foundation and Kosla Ventures, among others. We feel lucky to have mission-aligned, impact-focused, helpful investors. And they end that sentence with a big exclamation mark. In a January 11, 2003 article on the Market Realist website by Daniel Atenye, she writes about owners of OpenAI. OpenAI is owned by a group of technology entrepreneurs who have been involved with other startups such as LinkedIn, Y Combinator, PayPal, and Tesla. OpenAI's co-founders include Sam Altman, CEO, former president of Y Combinator, Greg Brockman, president, formerly of Stripe, Reed Hoffman, who is also a co-founder of LinkedIn, Ilya Sitzgaver, former Google expert, Peter Thiel, who also co-founded PayPal and Palantir Technologies, Jessica Livingston, founding partner of Y Combinator, Elon Musk, co-founder of Tesla, SpaceX, Starlink, Neuralink, and The Boring Company. The group came together in December 2015 and pledged more than $1 billion to launch OpenAI. According to the company website, the goal of OpenAI is to advance digital intelligence in the way that is most likely to benefit humanity as a whole, unconstrained by a need to generate financial return. About Elon Musk, she goes on to say, Musk was one of the co-founders of OpenAI, but he resigned from the company's board of directors in December 2018. He left to avoid a conflict of interest between OpenAI's work and Tesla's machine learning research to develop autonomous driving. The article goes on. As Tesla continues to become more focused on AI, this will eliminate a potential future conflict for Elon, states a blog post on OpenAI's website. 
Musk continues to donate and advise the company. So Musk is still an equity owner, hoping for his maximum 100 times return, but has resigned from the board for conflict reasons, as some of what Musk's other companies do directly competes with OpenAI. In a January 27, 2003 article on the Forbes website, it's announced, Microsoft confirms its $10 billion investment into ChatGPT, changing how Microsoft competes with Google, Apple, and other tech giants. In a January 9, 2023 article on the Semaphore website, Liz Hoffman and Reed Albergati wrote, Microsoft has been in talks to invest $10 billion into the owner of ChatGPT, the wildly popular app that has thrilled casual users and artificial intelligence experts since its latest software was released last month, people familiar with the matter said. The funding, which would also include other venture firms, would value OpenAI, the firm behind ChatGPT, at $29 billion, including the new investment. It's unclear if the deal has been finalized, but documents sent to prospective investors in recent weeks outlining its terms indicated a targeted close by the end of 2022. Microsoft's infusion would be part of a complicated deal in which the company would get 75% of OpenAI's profits until it recoups its investment. It's not clear whether money that OpenAI spends on Microsoft's cloud computing arm would count toward evening its account. After that threshold is reached, it would revert to a structure that reflects ownership of OpenAI, with Microsoft having a 49% stake, other investors taking another 49%, and OpenAI's nonprofit parent getting 2%. There's also a profit cap that varies for each set of investors, unusual for venture deals, which investors hope might return 20 or 30 times their money. The terms and the investment amount could change, and the deal could fall apart. Microsoft and OpenAI declined to comment. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that ChatGPT was allowing employees and early investors to sell their shares at a valuation of $29 billion. The information reported in October that Microsoft, which has invested $1 billion in cash and cloud credits into OpenAI in 2019, was in talks to increase its stake. Albergati gives his take on the structure of the Microsoft deal, as well as its strategic importance to Microsoft. The $29 billion is a big valuation for OpenAI, a company that hasn't yet figured out its business model, and $10 billion is a big price tag for Microsoft shareholders. But Microsoft's investment isn't much of a gamble. ChatGPT is bleeding money. Each time someone engages with its chatbot, it costs the company a few cents in computing power, according to Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI. But it's going to be spending most of it on Microsoft's cloud business, which is working hard to reach parity with competitor Amazon Web Services. If OpenAI figures out how to make money on products like ChatGPT and image creation tool DAL-E, Microsoft will get 75% of the profits until it recoups its initial investment.
beyond the financial risks and rewards for Microsoft, the bigger prize is that it gets to work alongside OpenAI in developing the technology on Microsoft Cloud, which instantly puts Microsoft at the forefront of what could be the most important consumer technology over the next decade. That's a huge coup for Microsoft, especially considering Google, a rival, has helped pioneer some of the technology used by OpenAI. Microsoft was also in talks to incorporate some of those features into other programs, like Word and Outlook email, the information reported. At that valuation, $29 billion, early investors are already sitting on partnership units worth about 29 times what they invested. Not bad, eh? I'd take that. So now we know that big tech titans, Silicon Valley Venture Capital, and Microsoft are some of the owners of OpenAI. These are not people who cared much about us when we were locked up during COVID. In fact, they minted it during that fraudulent disaster. And they actively participated in conjunction with the federal government in censoring a class or multiple classes of Americans on social media. And we expect them to manage this dangerous technology themselves? I don't think so. More on OpenAI's safety statements and deep dive into its owners next episode. In a prior episode, I shared data that shows 80% of Americans still get their news, especially political and government news, from left-leaning and far-left-leaning news sources. The top seven are the Weather Channel, the BBC, PBS, the Wall Street Journal, CBS, the Associated Press, and NPR. Because of this, they do not know about many occurrences and movements around the world, as well as in their own backyard. What they do know is often misinformation. I wish I could find public awareness polling on people, issues, and events like how many Americans know who George Soros is? How many Americans know what the World Economic Forum is? How many Americans know who Klaus Schwab is? How many Americans know that only 0.4% of the population identifies as transgender? How many Americans know who Dylan Mulvaney is? I bet that if you did a public awareness poll with these questions, the answer would be less than 50%, and perhaps much less than that. You can try it yourself. I did just that. For several days, I asked every non-political acquaintance I ran into who Dylan Mulvaney was. Not one of them knew. Not a single one. Some knew about the Bud Light PR disaster, but they had no idea who Dylan Mulvaney was. I know many of you don't believe me when I say 80% of Americans have just about no idea what's really going on or have a warped mainstream media view of people, issues, and events. Many of you don't believe me when I tell you we're living in an echo chamber on social media, that it represents less than 20%, more like 16% from pretty recent studies of political news in America. So don't trust my word. Do some of your own personal public awareness polling. I'd love to hear what you find out. Last week, I talked about Joe Biden's use of corruption by proxy, as well articulated in Peter Schweitzer's book, Profiles in Corruption. 
We covered how 10% Joe used his brother James and crack addict sex offender Hunter as conduits for money from his corrupt and criminal activities. Today, I want to talk about three more people associated with the Biden crime operation. Howard Crane, Frank Biden, and Valerie Biden-Owen, who are highlighted in a New York Post article written by Schweitzer and published on January 18, 2020. Howard Crane is married to Joe Biden's youngest daughter, Ashley, and is also the chief medical officer of Startup Health. Schweitzer writes, Startup Health is an investment consultancy based out of New York City. And in June 2011, the company barely had a website. The firm was the brainchild of three siblings from Philadelphia. Stephen Crane is CEO and co-founder, while his brother, Dr. Howard Crane, serves as chief medical officer. Sister Barry serves as the firm's chief strategy officer. A friend named Unity Stokes is a co-founder and serves as president. Schweitzer continues, Startup Health was barely up and running when in June 2011, two of the company's executives were ushered into the Oval Office of the White House. They met with President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. The following day, the new company would be featured at a large healthcare tech conference being run by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and startup health executives became regular visitors to the White House, attending events in 2011, 2014, and 2015. Startup Health gained access to the highest levels of power in Washington through Howard Crane, Joe Biden's son-in-law. Schweitzer goes on. Startup Health offers to provide new companies technical and relationship advice in exchange for a stake in the business. Demonstrating and highlighting the fact that you can score a meeting with the President of the United States certainly helps prove a strategic company asset, high-level contacts. Vice President Joe Biden continued to help Crane promote his company at several appearances through his last months in the White House including one in January 2017, where he made a surprise showing at the Startup Health Festival in San Francisco. The corporate event, open only to Startup Health members, enabled the 250 people in attendance to chat in a closed session with the vice president. To me, it would appear Startup Health's technical and relationship advice is nothing more than pay-for-play access to the powers who control the purse strings in D.C. They're extorting shares in high-growth startups as bribes for access. They are nothing more than lobbyists with a partner who is vice president of the United States and who is now president. What a scam. Frank Biden is the other Biden brother. He's quite the scumbag. About Frank, Schweitzer writes... In late March 2009, Vice President Joe Biden landed in Costa Rica aboard Air Force Two and went to the Costa Rican Presidential Palace for a one-on-one -on -one with President Oscar Arias. The Biden visit had symbolic significance. The last time a high-ranking American official had visited the country was back in 1997, when Bill Clinton had come. Why Costa Rica, you ask? A teeny tiny Latin American country? Great question. Like many of the places to which 10% Joe traveled, there seemed to be incredibly coincidental family business connections. Weird, eh? The article continues. 
Joe Biden's trip to Costa Rica came at a fortuitous time for his brother Frank, who was busy working deals in the country. Just months after Vice President Biden's visit in August, Costa Rica News announced a new multilateral partnership to reform real estate in Latin America among Frank Biden, a developer named Craig Williamson, and the Guanacaste Country Club, a newly planned resort. The partnership, which appears to be ongoing, was wrapped in a beautiful package as a call on resources available to the companies and individuals to reform the social, economic, and environmental practices of real estate developers across the world by example. In real terms, Frank's dream was to build in the jungles of Costa Rica thousands of homes, a world-class golf course, casinos, and an anti-aging center. The Costa Rican government was eager to cooperate with the vice president's brother. Frank's vision for a country club in Costa Rica received support from the highest levels of the Costa Rican government, despite his lack of experience in building such developments. He met with the Costa Rican ministers of education and energy and environment, as well as the president of the country. On October 4, 2016, the Costa Rican Ministry of Public Education signed a letter of intent with Frank's company, Sun Fund Americas. The project involved allowing a company called Go Solar to operate solar power facilities in Costa Rica. The previous year, the Obama-Biden administration's OPIC had authorized a $6.5 million taxpayer-backed loan for the project. In June 2014, Vice President Biden announced the launch of the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, CESI. The program called for increasing access to financing for Caribbean energy projects that he strongly supported. American taxpayer dollars were dedicated to facilitating deals that matched U.S. government financing with local energy projects in Caribbean countries, including Jamaica. In January 2015, USAID announced that it would be spending $10 million to boost renewable energy projects in Jamaica over the next five years. After Joe Biden brought together leaders for CESI, Brother Frank's firm Sun Fund Americas announced that it was engaged in projects and is in negotiation with governments of other countries in the Caribbean region for both its solar and waste-to-energy development services. As if to push the idea along, the Obama administration's OPIC provided a $47.5 million loan to support the construction of a 20-megawatt solar facility in Clarendon, Jamaica. Just coincidentally, Frank Biden's Sun Fund Americas later announced that it had signed a power purchase agreement to build a 20-megawatt solar facility in Jamaica. Nothing to see here, people. Move along. Nothing to see. The Biden family have been scumbags for a long time. In a February 6, 2020 article in the Daily Mail by Ryan Perry, Alan Butterfield, and Josh Boswell, we learn more about Frank. In a piece titled, Exclusive, Joe Biden's brother Frank owes dead man's family $1 million for 80-mile-per-hour car crash but has never paid a cent in 20 years, and the Democratic candidate did nothing to help. Have you heard anything about this? 
Here are the highlights from that article. Joe Biden's youngest brother, Frank, 66, is revealed by DailyMail.com investigation to owe a grieving family almost $1 million. He has never paid a penny in the 20 years since Michael Albano, a single father, was run over in a fatal car crash near San Diego, California in August 1999. Frank Biden had rented a high-powered Jaguar and was in the passenger seat when he put the car into manual and said, punch it to the driver. Albano was hit at up to 80 miles an hour by the car, and Biden was allegedly heard saying, keep driving, as the 38-year-old father of two teenagers lay dying on the road. The Albano family sued Biden, and he was ordered to pay both the dead man's daughter's compensation in 2002, but has never paid a cent. The dead man's family pleaded in 2008 with Joe Biden, then Barack Obama's running mate, to get his brother to pay up, but were told he was penniless. Since then, he has earned hundreds of thousands of dollars in strings of ventures, including for-profit charter schools and Costa Rican property development. Biden's license was suspended when Albano was killed, and he has a long history of driving on suspended licenses, including this month. It's a long, detailed, thorough article that's worth the time to read. A link to it is in the show notes. Valerie Biden Owens is Joe Biden's sister. The article states, During his years in the Senate, Biden's family benefited financially in other ways as he leveraged political power. Joe's sister Valerie ran all of his Senate campaigns, as well as his presidential runs in 1998 and 2008. But she was also a senior partner in a political messaging firm named Joe Slade White and Company. The only two executives listed at the firm were Joe Slade White and Valerie. The firm received large fees from the Biden campaigns that Valerie was running. Two and a half million dollars in consulting fees flowed to her firm from Citizens for Biden and Biden for President Inc. during the 2008 presidential bid alone. Joe Slade White and Company worked for the Biden campaigns over 18 years. This is a family and circle of friends who are corrupt, often criminal, scumbags. Do you see the way they're coming after Clarence Thomas? They've put a team of opposition researchers and communication specialists on digging for dirt and disseminating story pitches to anyone at any media outlet who will listen. I think this means they're preparing for a Republican to win the presidency in 2024, as well as take control of the Senate and expand the majority already held in the House. They're planning to legislate from the bench, and they need to flip the Supreme Court to get favorable rulings on lawsuits designed to do just that. They need to be able to nominate and approve another progressive justice while they have the presidency and the Senate. And this is a win-win strategy for progressives. If they manage to hold on to anything in D.C., this makes it even easier for them to break us down and tear us apart. They will do everything in their power to get him to resign or force him out prior to the change of power and control. It's going to get ugly. (laughs) 
no porn for kids today. No uncomfortable reading for me. But what I do read you today might be even worse. As it's subtle and contains no vulgarity or explicit sexual content, it makes it easier to pass muster with parents. Alex Gino, who calls himself on his website an award-winning author of queer and progressive middle-grade fiction, with a big exclamation mark at the end of that sentence, wrote a book called Melissa, and then it was renamed George. Oh, wait. It started out as George, but it's now named Melissa. Confused enough? Well, imagine reading this as a middle grader. It's a little long, but I want you to try to imagine being a third grader, age eight, listening to this being read to you by your teacher, an authority figure who you've been taught to respect and obey. Try to put yourself in that setting as the teacher reads this to you. George pulled a silver house key out of the smallest pocket of a large red backpack. Mom had sewn the key in so that it wouldn't get lost, but the yarn wasn't quite long enough to reach the keyhole if the bag rested on the ground. Instead, George had to steady herself awkwardly on one foot while the backpack rested on her other knee. She wiggled the key until it clicked into place. To make sure we're on the same page here, George thinks of herself as a girl because the author wrote, George had to steady herself. The book goes on. Stumbling inside, she called out, hello, no lights were on. Still, George needed to be certain the house was empty. The door of Mom's room was open and the bed sheets were flat. Scott's room was unoccupied as well. Sure that she was alone, George went into the third bedroom, opened the closet door, and surveyed the pile of stuffed animals and assorted toys inside. They were undisturbed. Okay, you're an eight-year-old kid, remember? And you continue to hear the teacher saying that George is referring to herself as her. George must be a girl, right? Maybe her full name is Georgina. Might you be asking this as a third grader? The book goes on. Mom complained that George hadn't played with any of the toys in years and said that they should be donated to needy families. But George knew they were needed here to guard her most prized and secret collection. Fishing beneath the teddy bears and fluffy bunnies, George felt for a flat denim bag. Once she had it in her hand, she ran to the bathroom, shut the door, and turned the lock. Clutching the bag in tightly wrapped arms, George slid to the ground. As she tipped the denim bag on its side, the silky slippery pages of a dozen magazines fell out onto the tile bathroom floor. Covers promised how to have perfect skin, 12 fresh summer haircuts, how to tell a hottie you like him, and wild winter wardrobes. George was only a few years younger than the girl smiling at her from the glossy pages. She thought of them as her friends. So more use of she, her. So now you're almost certain, if you're this eight-year-old that we're, we're uh, pretending to be, you're almost certain that George is a girl, right? The book continues, George picked up an issue from last April that she had looked through countless times before. She browsed the busy pages with a crisp flip, flip, flip that stirred up the faint paper smell. She paused on a photo 
of four girls at the beach. They model swimsuits in a line, each striking a pose. A guide on the right-hand side of the page recommended various styles based on body type. They were all girls' bodies. On the next page, two girls sat laughing on a blanket, their arms around each other. One wore a striped bikini. The other wore a polka dot one piece with cutouts at the hips. And this goes on and on, talking about the magazines and explaining how she found these magazines and she wanted to keep them and all of that. So I'm going to skip ahead. Let's continue. George jumped when she heard a clatter outside. She looked out the window to the front door directly below. No one was in sight, but Scott's bike lay in the driveway, the back wheel still spinning. Scott's bike. That meant Scott. Scott was George's older brother, a high school freshman. The hair on George's neck stood up. Soon, heavy footsteps climbed the stairs to the second floor. The locked bathroom door rattled. It was as if Scott was rattling George's heart inside her ribcage. Bang, bang, bang. You in there, George? Yeah. The shiny magazines were spread across the tile floor. She gathered them into a pile and stuffed them into the denim bag. Her heart was thumping almost as loudly as Scott's foot against the door. Yo, bro, I gotta go, Scott yelled from the far side. George zipped up the bag as quickly as she could and looked for a place to stash it. She couldn't walk out with it. Scott would want to know what was inside. The bathroom's one cabinet was stuffed with towels and didn't shut all the way. No good either. Finally, she hung the bag from the shower head and closed the curtain desperately hoping that this wouldn't be the moment Scott discovered personal hygiene. So Scott, George's brother, is calling George bro, as in brother. Scott rushed in as soon as George opened the door, unzipping his jeans before he reached the toilet. George exited quickly, closed the door, and leaned on the wall outside to catch her breath. The bag was probably still swinging in the shower. George hoped it wouldn't hit against the curtain, or worse, fallen land in the bathtub with a thud. George didn't want to be standing near the bathroom when Scott came out, so she went down to the kitchen. She poured herself a glass of orange juice and sat at the table, her skin tingling. Outside, a cloud passed overhead and the room grew darker. When the bathroom door banged open, George jumped in her seat, splashing juice on her hand. Thump, 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 thump. Scott tromped downstairs, a DVD case in his hand. He opened the refrigerator door, pulled out the carton of orange juice, and took a long swig. He wore a thin black t-shirt and jeans with a hole in the knee. He hadn't gotten a haircut in months, and dark brown curls formed a mop on his head. Sorry if I busted in on you while you were taking a dump. Scott wiped the juice off his lips with his bare forearm. I wasn't taking a dump, George said. Then what took you so long? George hesitated. Oh, I know, Scott said. I bet you had a magazine in there. George froze, her mouth half open and her brain mid-thought. The air felt warm and her mind swirled. She put her hands on the table to make sure she was still there. That's it, Scott grinned, oblivious to George's panic. That's my little bro growing up and looking at dirty magazines. Okay, maybe you missed the bro comment before as an eight-year-old third grader. But now it's used again and it's getting hard to miss. It's also starting to confuse you. Oh, George said out loud. She knew what dirty magazines were. She almost laughed. The girls in the magazines she was looking at wore a lot more clothes than that, even the ones at the beach. George relaxed at least a little. 
Don't worry, George, I won't tell mom. Anyway, I'm heading back out. Just had to get this. Scott shook the black plastic box he held in his hand and the DVD rattled inside. Haven't even seen it yet, but it's supposed to be a classic. It's German. The title means something like the blood of evil. When the zombies gnaw this one guy's arm off and kill him, this other guy has to use the knot-off arm of his dead best friend to fight the zombies. It's awesome. It sounds gross, George said. It is, Scott nodded enthusiastically. He took another gulp of orange juice, put the carton back in the fridge, and headed for the door. I'll let you get back to thinking about girls, Scott joked on the way out. George dashed up to the bathroom, rescued her bag, and buried it deep inside the closet, under the toys and stuffed animals. She put a pile of dirty clothes on top, just in case. Then she closed the door and collapsed, face first, onto her bed. Her hands crossed over her head, pressing her elbows to her ears and wishing she were someone else, anyone else. Now, as a third grader, an eight-year-old, you've got questions. See how this works? It's a form of grooming. That's another topic you should do some of your own public awareness polling on. Folks, this is a book in the Scholastic Book Club, which millions of American school kids purchase books from. According to the Scholastic website, this is for kids 8 to 12 years old and grades 3 to 7. The book is designed to groom young children into some form of gender identity or sexual identity crisis. That means gender dysphoria, which is classified by the American Psychiatric Association as a mental disorder. Scholastic is aiding and abetting the culturing of mental illness in our children through the sale of books like this. To plant seeds at a very early age with our extremely impressionable babies, to bring them into the LGTBQ plus whatever fold or club or cult. Can you imagine being an eight or nine-year-old kid reading this? The questions it puts in impressionable young minds? Wouldn't that make them perfect targets for those who want to abuse or sexually assault them? Do you know if your kids are reading this? Or having it read to them by progressive teachers? This is disgusting. It's pedophilia and child abuse. It's grooming. It's got to stop. Let everyone you can know about this. When it comes to talking politics, grassroots politics, I've been discussing in previous episodes what I call concepts. They're statements of fact I believe we all need to understand and agree upon. If not 100%, then 80% or more. In order to have a place where we're all on the same page, what management consultants have called the current state, before we can make plans to get to where we want to be, our objective or the future state. In other words, we need to know the current environment, identify what's wrong with it, have a definable vision of what we want, and then make action plans and execute them to accomplish the changes we need to see to get to our goal. Let me repeat them here. We talked about American voters, about them as a whole, not just you and me. We must agree 80% of American voters are disengaged or apathetic. Again, I've labeled these people the unenlightened. The 80% unenlightened get whatever political news they do consume from left-leaning or very left-leaning news outlets. They're good people getting bamboozled. They're naive. 
social media doesn't reach much of this 80%, if any. It's an echo chamber for the 20% who are engaged, most if not all who can't be persuaded to change their positions with facts, data, and logic, even if their positions are factually incorrect. We talked about our current breed of elected politicians, about whom we've got to agree we're fighting the uniparty. It's not R versus D. It's not conservative versus liberal. It's, next concept, insiders, them, versus outsiders, us, in both parties. Another concept is it's a rigged game. We haven't talked about it much. We started last week. We're going to get into it a little more soon. 80 to 90 percent of politicians are bad hires. We have elected stinkers. We fell for their act, their facade, their caricature, and we need to terminate them. Our default position must be to not trust anybody that's in elected office. We need to make them prove themselves. We need to look at their performance and what they've done, not what they talk about doing or talking about what they've done. We need to see it factually on paper. We also need to understand that their number one priority, these people who are in elected office, their number one priority is re-election. We must view everything they do and say through this lens first, or we'll continue to be swindled and bamboozled. Last week, I gave some examples of how state election laws are used to rig the game. Today, I want to talk about other rigging and manipulation tools used by insiders and party elites of both parties. Those being endorsements, especially primary endorsements, slate cards, mailings, and money. The party insiders know American voters. They have sliced and diced voter data from every angle with every possible analysis tool for decades. They know what we know, one of the most important concepts. About 80% of American voters are disengaged or apathetic. That means about 80% of potential primary voters are disengaged or apathetic. Per Statista, in the 2020 presidential primaries, turnout went from a high of 45.7% in Montana to a low, get this one, to a low of 2.6% in North Dakota. Big states with big electoral vote counts had turnout for the primary that were dismal, which allows for manipulation and rigging. Texas had 21% turnout. New York, 5.5% turnout. Pennsylvania, 28.1% turnout. New Jersey, 23.8% turnout. Ohio, 20.8% turnout. What does this mean? Two things. First, party insiders and staunch party cult members always vote in primaries. They outnumber all voters in primaries, as opposed to general elections, significantly. Second, if 80% of the non-insiders and non-staunch party cult members are disengaged, they'll probably vote for party-endorsed candidates and or candidates on slate cards they've received in the mail if they do vote in a primary. So party organizations at the county and state levels who want to rig the system do primary endorsements, which lead to money being allocated to printing and mailing slate cards with endorsed candidates' names on them, 
leading to those cards showing up in uninformed voters' mailboxes, leading to them being used to manipulate those voters' votes. Party-endorsed primary candidates win elections over 90% of the time. It's a rigged game. Fight and fight hard in your counties and states for no primary endorsements. That's our show for today. Please subscribe to the Unite American Show on Rumble or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to give us a like where you can. And please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpakita. That's at M-P-U-K-I-T-A. And please remember, unity without truth is conspiracy. Stay safe. I'll see you next week.